Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, we are known, I think, for drilling down into the nitty-gritty details of issues from time to time and can get very uh, specific and focused in on uh, particular, sometimes abstract or small uh, issues in the coastal zone around the world. Uh, And today we're going to take a much broader view of issues uh, in the marine and coastal world uh, on a show today dedicated to the work that's happening um, at the Impact 5 conference in Vancouver, British Columbia, which is wrapping up, uh, wrapped up on February 9th, and really about the efforts of organizations, in particular the Pew Charitable Trust, to lead our way to a better understanding of ocean conservation, and in particular, how to create and better manage marine protected areas. I'm really looking forward to having this kind of a global conversation, Tyler, on coastal issues. It's it's refreshing to take take a step back and take a broad view. I could not agree more. We enjoy wonking out on the atom, so to speak, the (laughs) smallest of components. And we also like to wonk out on the universe, the broad big picture, which in this case involves the whole planet Earth. And uh, obviously this is the blue planet, Peter. It's uh, it's a, a planet dominated by oceans and those oceans are uh, oftentimes outside the jurisdiction of any particular nation state. And so yes. us humans have to get rather creative in how we conceptualize and conserve our uh, hugely important oceans. Science says that our oceans are really the drivers of life on Earth. It is the blue planet, as I said. But Peter, we have an amazing guest today, a a friend of the podcast to tell us about Pew's uh, work in this important space. We do indeed. Uh, Joining us again on the uh, American Shoreline podcast is Nicola Clark. She is a project officer with Pew's Ocean Governance Portfolio. Uh, Nicola was on the show, Tyler, as you recall, back in August last year, August of 2022. And uh, I'm so much looking forward to an update from Nicola about uh, the work at Pew's Ocean Governance uh, Portfolio uh, team and about efforts to uh, address issues of the high seas and marine protected areas. It's gonna be a fantastic conversation. It is. We're talking biodiversity. One of the one of those subjects that I think uh, is going to be trending up on through 2023 and beyond. It's going to be a great show, ladies and gentlemen. But first, a word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, Nicola, thank you so much for coming back to the American Shoreline podcast to provide an update on the work that you're doing at the Pew Charitable Trust and some of the new initiatives that you are leading with your team uh, to better protect and understand uh, ocean conservation on a global scale. Appreciate so much your time today. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm excited to join you today. Well, uh, we understand that there was this fantastic conference in Vancouver, British Columbia that just uh, closed out last week on February 9th. And I understand you had an opportunity to attend, participate in this conference. Uh, Would you be so kind as to introduce our audience to the Impact 5 conference? Uh, 
What was it about and what were you hoping to accomplish at that event? Absolutely. Um, so uh, so for, for those who want to refresh on the acronym, IMPAC5 stands for the 5th International Marine Protected Areas Conference. Um, and this, this happens only once every couple of years, and it was actually delayed by the pandemic. So this particular um, IMPAC5 meeting in Vancouver was a long time coming. Um, and I think folks were really excited to be able to, to join together in person to talk all things marine protected areas. Um, and, you know, I think the conference had a couple of different focuses. Um, they were really interested in getting perspectives from Indigenous peoples and local communities and making sure that the, uh, that Indigenous peoples and local communities are really um, part of the conversation, part of the dialogue. Um, There's also a lot of emphasis in, in hearing perspectives from youth um, and youth engagement. Um, and, you know, there was also a, a lot of interest in, in connectivity and thinking about how we connect marine protected areas um, and, you know, create effective systems of, of MPAs. And I was pleasantly surprised um, at the interest in high seas MPAs in particular, because, of course, that's what I, I'm working on and we are working on um, on Pew's ocean governance team is is we're working on for real this time, finalizing a, a high seas treaty that will enable us to establish high seas marine protected areas. Um, so that's why why we were at this particular conference was to to talk a little bit more about high seas marine protected areas, and then also to introduce and to launch Pew's new um, web tool that will help us get a sense of where in the high seas we should actually be prioritizing um, our conservation efforts once we have a new treaty. I am excited to talk about this tool, but before we do, Nicola, I'd love to get a better sense of the Impact 5 scene. Who, who, who were there? Like, what kind, of, what kind of folks? What kind of professional backgrounds? Which communities uh, showed up to Impact 5? Sure. Um, so I think um, it was, I will say it was a little overwhelming. Um, I think a lot of the people that I spoke to shared my feeling of just being overwhelmed by the the size, by the number of different events that were all taking place at the same time. I mean, just to look at the program of work was really um, difficult to wrap your, your head around all of the different activities and symposiums um, that were taking place at the same time. Um, but the, the folks who were there, you know, it's really focused at um, on marine protected area practitioners and managers. Um, there's, of course, a lot of interest um, from academics, as well as from civil society organizations, nonprofits like Pew, um, like others who are who are doing um, marine protected area advocacy. Um, and then there are also some uh, government officials who are there as well. Um, you know, they, they tend to be the folks who are sort of doing the MPA work within countries. So, you know, for example, from the United States, it would be folks who are working at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration um, on, on NOAA's Marine Sanctuaries program. Program, just as an example, um, and and I should also note that there there is a sort of the conference ends with a high level. Um, week where where um, governments um, as well as you know stakeholders um, uh, including youth including indigenous peoples will partake and in, in what's being called a, a leaders forum um, to sort of have a more a formal outcome of the impact um, session and the impact conference um, but the the bulk of the the session is is really sort of um, doing some wonking out on marine protected areas and how we manage them um, and 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 uh, how we effectively are are going to be working together to advance marine protected areas all over the globe. I love it. I love it. We need I, my sense is that we need to do a lot more wonking out on marine protected areas. <laughs> Uh, would you also provide a little context for where we are? When you were on the show in August, uh, as memory serves, you were, I believe, in New York. Yes. Uh, and you were uh, in the in the midst, in the midst, right in the middle of a really high stakes negotiation yes. uh, between w w at the U.N. And my understanding is, unfortunately, the parties were unable to come to an agreement. Uh, would you fill us in from that? point to now and you know it sounds like the vibes in Vancouver were 
excellent. Not not like we're deflated here. Uh, t- take us through how, how what what has happened since August, and where where does that bring us now? Absolutely. So yes, um, I I was. Uh, really hopeful um, in August that we would be able to finish with a treaty. Um, And you're right that um, at the end, we didn't quite get there. It really was close. Um, we, 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 we simply ran out of time. You know, I think it was, it was around midnight on, we, we had originally two weeks that we were given to um, have that meeting room space at the United Nations to try and, and finalize that agreement. Um, and everyone was working really hard. I mean, governments um, from, from all over, um, NGOs were working really, really hard to try and, and really finish that, that negotiation within the time frame. We simply ran out of time. I mean, I think a number of the delegates that I spoke with sort of shared the sentiment that if we just had, you know, one, maybe two more days, uh, we could have gotten there. But we the, the clock the clock ran out, unfortunately. So um, they decided to resume uh, or to rather to pause the session, to pause that negotiation um, and to resume it um, at a, the soonest possible date in 2023. Um, and that's actually upon us. Um, so the the session, the negotiations will resume um, February 20th. And we have, again, another two weeks, February 20th through March 3rd. Um, and again, you know, I think that governments have been um, working intercessionally to try and, and see if we can have some better understanding and maybe find some landing zones for the, the really sticky issues. Um, and we've been working on that sort of intercessionally. And again, the a lot of the delegates that I've spoken with are feeling really optimistic about this upcoming round of negotiations in New York um, and feeling feeling really optimistic and hopeful that we will be able to come home with the treaty this time. Uh, Nick, Nicola, could you do uh, us a favor for, for the listeners out there and specifically remind us of the, of the treaty that is being negotiated uh, through the United Nations and what you hope this treaty can accomplish? Absolutely. Thanks for that. Uh, so this is this treaty is is has a very long official name we we call it by a few shorthands we often refer to it as the bb and j treaty um, and that stands for biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction um, and we sometimes unofficially refer to this as the high seas treaty because really um, what this treaty will cover is marine biodiversity um, in international waters and in international areas, which is actually um, sort of the the waters uh, that, that are beyond national jurisdiction, but then also the seafloor that's beyond national jurisdiction. Um, and, you know, the goal of this treaty really is to address some key governance gaps that are out there um, and some particularly important ones that it's hoping to address include um, enabling the international community to establish marine protected areas in the high seas, which is something that they can't currently do for most areas of the high seas. Um, and then it also has some other really important gaps that it's hoping to address, like, for example, um, ensuring that there are some ro- robust provisions in place to to address and to conduct environmental impact assessments, right, to make sure that any damaging, um, potentially damaging activities that will take place um, in the high seas have gone through an impact assessment um, and and have sort of hopefully addressed and mitigated any potentially damaging effects that are there. So we're, we have some high hopes. There's some really important gaps that this, this BB&J treaty will hopefully fill. It sounds a little bit like for our listeners in in the United States that part of the BBNJ treaty, um, as you said, allows for the creation of international marine protected areas that are on the high seas and also this impact assessment. Maybe a little bit like uh, listeners in the U.S. might think of an environmental impact statement review. Is that kind of fair that new activities on the high seas would undergo? Exactly. An organized review and analysis. Would that be conducted under the auspices, uh, under the treaty? Would that be under the auspices of the United Nations, I would assume? Ah, uh, Peter, you've asked such a great question. You've hit on one of the key questions that they they need to really finalize in this upcoming negotiation. Um, so I think, you know, where it's trending for, for EIAs is... is um, 
you know, that the the new treaty would certainly establish some some guidelines, right, for how EIAs should be conducted. It would it would establish the trigger, right? So um, at what stage of an activity, at what potential impact of an activity um, would an environmental impact assessment be required to be conducted? Um, so it'll certainly provide those those guidelines. Um, and I think what they're sort of deciding right now is exactly this, right? Who is responsible for for conducting um, the impact assessment, and who is responsible for deciding whether that um, whether an activity can proceed, um, and what safeguards might be in place, right? How we might hold states accountable for for those decisions and for those activities that are taking place. So, to some of those details um, still have to be finalized. Um, but you are you're absolutely right that it's it's very similar to sort of our environmental impact um, assessments that take place within the U.S. It would it would be a similar idea. So the final negotiations for this international treaty uh, to protect the high seas kicking off, as you said, in New York City at the U.N. headquarters on February 20th for a couple of weeks. Uh, I assume that you will be attending, uh, participating in some form and fashion. Are you optimistic, uh, Nicola, that this time the bow can be put on this treaty and prepared for ratification by governments around the world? I am optimistic. Um, I, I do think, you know, we came so close um, in in the August meeting. Uh, I think there's a lot, a lot of governments who really, really, really um, want to get this done for a variety of reasons. Uh, for for personal reasons, they've they've been working very hard on this issue, um, and they really very much want to see a treaty concluded. Um, and and then there's also a lot of political pressure. There are a number of uh, over 50 countries um, who have signed up um, and committed to to finalizing a a robust high seas treaty. So there's a lot of countries that have some really high level political pressure to deliver a treaty. Um, and um, so there's the political pressure, um, there's the, the personal will, um, and then I think um, there's there's a sense that we, we maybe have a sense of where the landing zones are. And so I think um, it, it, it feels like it's, it's, it's in the realm of possibility to actually actually bring the treaty home. So I'm, I am feeling optimistic that, that this, this time we, we will um, end with a, a, a success. So <clears throat> this is a tough one, but are you telling me that you feel, how much more confident do you feel going into this negotiation than say you did in August of 2022? Um, I feel much more confident. I mean, I think in August, um, it was almost a unnecessary optimism because I think in August we knew that the only way we were going to get a treaty um, was if we had the attitude and we went in um, with the attitude that, all right, this is it. We have to negotiate as though we're going to be getting a treaty. Um, and I think people did adopt that attitude, but it was just, um, like I said, it was a little bit <laughs> too late um, before before people were really seriously engaging in those negotiations. Um, the reason I feel optimistic about this time is because this meeting, technically, we are picking up right where we left off. Um, so um, it, it's, you know, all of the documents that were on the table um, on Friday at midnight are still on the table. So this really will be more like the the resuming of the conversation um, rather than having to start all over. So, um, you know, I think... Uh, this this time the the first time around I was optimistic because I had to be because the only way that we could get a treaty is if I was optimistic you know if we all were optimistic about it and this time I'm optimistic about it because I think we really actually have a treaty within sight and I think that it's actually very possible and we're really close to being able to bring it home. So it sounds like the the magic ingredient. It's kind of like Peter. It's kind of like Southern barbecue. It's time. <laughs> you got it. We needed a little bit more time. And uh, obviously, we're dealing with high level uh, diplomats and whatnot. Uh, time is it's not it's not as though you could just lock them in the room uh, and keep them for an extra week and get it done where they have to go about their business and bring them back. So, Nicola, what what gaps remain. I mean, so we're bringing back all the documents. We're putting everything back on the table exactly the way it was our last attempt. What bridges need to be built in order to get there? 
Um, you know, I think uh, I, I think it's really honestly, it's to, you, you joked about having delegates and sort of locked in the room. I think they would have be- very willingly been locked in a room. It's just the, the UN didn't have the room for us to be locked in. Um, and and it is uh, it's it's that time that we need to make sure that we're bringing um, uh, both sort of developed countries and developing countries together in the room to to both understand um, what it is that that developing countries are wanting from this agreement, particularly as it comes with regards to um, capacity building and benefit sharing, and especially monetary benefit sharing. I think there's a lot of um, questions about um, funding. Um, but again, I think I think we really are to the stage now where it's it's those key delegates um, from sort of the the different different ends, different sides of the spectrum um, need to come together and and find that landing zone. And as I said, I think they have the very, uh, you know, it's if you're in an, a helicopter, you can see the landing pad. We see the landing pad. We just need to um, make sure that we are, are zooming in together um, to, to find that to find that exact middle. Um, and, and so I think we're there. Um, I, I think, as I said, it's it's at this point, it's a it's a sort of bilateral engagement exercise with, you know, making sure that developed countries are are um, showing flexibility and and also um, really bringing the ambition that they have signed up for. Um, many of them have signed up to be part of this high ambition coalition. Um, and so we need to remind them of that when they are in those closed door sessions that remember how you said you were going to be ambitious. Don't forget that um, when you go into to really negotiate these these final details. Um, and I would add also, you know, I think um, it's it's time for us to also, you know, without losing sight of of finishing this high seas treaty, um, the actual treaty text itself, I think there are also other things that we can start to think about, right? Um, this is the time to start thinking about, um, you know, once we once we finish this treaty that will en- enable us to establish high seas marine protected areas, which high seas areas should we protect first? Which high seas areas should we prioritize for protection? Um, and Pew's actually got a brand new web tool that we've launched to help us to answer that question. Uh, we'd love to, and uh, it is called the Protect the High Seas tool. Uh, and it is an, uh, an interactive tool to uh, allow government officials and the public, those involved in the negotiations perhaps, uh, to help develop conservation strategies to protect the high seas. Uh, it sounds like a great service to the uh, negotiators and to the participants and the public to have available this new interactive tool created by the Pew Charitable Trust. Could you tell us more, introduce us, what is it for? How would it be used, uh, the Protect the High Seas tool developed by Pew? Absolutely. Um, so this tool builds off of a, a study that we actually, um, and an analysis that we, we commissioned um, way back. And we started working on this, on answering this question um, of where, which high seas areas we should protect first. Um, we, it, back in 2018, we collaborated with some scientists um, that a team of scientists from around the world, um, but led by Dr. Doug McCauley um, and, and his team at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, and, and it brought together this team of diverse scientists with diverse expertise. So um, in highly migratory species and climate and fishery science and deep sea ecology. Um, and so we worked together with these scientists to identify sort of a methodology and the best data that we could use to help us answer this question. Um, and so we, we did that, you know, the um, and we created this uh, this report um, that that sort of identified out there some high seas conservation places. Um, now this report launched in March of 2020, so it didn't quite get the splash that we were hoping hoping that it would. Um, but we used this benefit of some extra time that we had um, with the with the pandemic um, to really revisit the tool uh, or to revisit that analysis. And we thought it would be really cool um, if we turned that analysis 
into an interactive web tool just to give folks um, to allow people to sort of tailor it a little bit to what their own conservation goals are. Right. So when we did this initial analysis, it was sort of a team of scientists who set the specific parameters and who sort of set um, which features, uh, how, you know, how we would weight certain features within the actual analysis. Um, and what this web tool does is it turns it over to, to users. And those users can be, you know, UN negotiators, they can be scientists, they can be just sort of the the, the general public who's interested in, in high seas marine protected areas. Um, and they can actually select um, which features they would want to prioritize um, as part uh, for for a, a, for protecting um, in a high seas marine protected area, and so you know more specifically um, the features that we that we have that we allow um, users to sort of select include biodiversity. So um, this biodiversity um, is looking not only at sort of the the breadth of, of species and organisms that are out there, um, but it's also looking at um, where biodiversity is projected to be in a climate changed future. Um, and it also is taking it factors in sort of species extinction risk, right? So thinking about um, how threatened um, some of these particular species would be. Um, so that's one feature that chooser, that users can choose to prioritize or not. Um, some other features that we have um, include productivity. Um, so you know, looking at the photosynthesis and and um, the really the sort of um, base foundation of of the food pyramid. Um, we also look at seafloor diversity. So sort of how different seafloor habitats. Um, um, we know that the more diverse the seafloor habitats, um, the greater the diversity of of species and ecosystems that can be found there. Um, we also look at um, sea mounts and sea vents, for example. So underwater sea mountains and underwater sea vents have great um, instances of endemic species, so species that are found nowhere else on Earth. Uh, so we give users the chance to say um, if they if they think that those perhaps are the most important, important feature that should really be prioritized. And and then a final layer that we have um, is looking at fishing um, fishing that's going on. So for example, um, our initial anal our initial analysis treated fishing as a, a cost. So basically um, areas that were really high fishing grounds, so really active fishing grounds, we forced the, the algorithm to avoid those highly fished areas. And we got a lot of criticism for that, um, and we, we anticipated it. it. was It was quite a debate within our, our team whether or not we would include that. Um, and so the cool thing about this tool, right, is that it allows you to turn that um, sort of on or off. You can choose um, if you want to create a, a, a conservation solution um, that would protect important places while avoiding those those highly fished um, areas, or you can say. I don't care about avoiding highly fished areas. I want to say which see which areas are the most important um, to to protect. Um, you know because they are biodiverse or they have incredible seamounts or they're incredibly productive. Um, so you can choose that as well. Um, so yeah, so it, it really turns it over into to users um, to to identify which which features are the most important to them and to see which high seas areas would need to be priorities for protection in order to really sort of create a conservation plan that meets those their own conservation goals. That sounds fantastic. And, uh, it, you know, opens up the avenue for, for citizens to get involved in understanding the resources on the high seas that are at risk, enough information to understand where these valuable areas of biodiversity are, the unique features that you're speaking about. Would it allow me as a, as an individual to get on and, and perhaps uh, suggest a boundary for a marine protected area? Does the tool allow me to, uh, to propose those or to select management approaches that might apply within a particular area? 
I'm really glad that you asked that question because um, it's an important point that we want to we want to clarify about this tool. So it is not um, we it, the, the short answer is no, <laughs> that it doesn't allow um, a line drawing exercise. And that's it's actually it's intentional that we designed it in such a way that we hope that this will be the start of a concert of a conversation. Right. Um, as you all know, the high seas areas are are relatively data poor compared to others. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't know enough about them to know which areas are, are going to be incredibly special and important to protect. Um, but what it does mean is that, you know, in order to engage in that sort of line drawing exercise, you need a really, really high level of, of data. Um, and you also, um, we would need a, a sort of that high level of data that would likely be more specific to a particular region that's in question right um and and you would also want to make sure that you are it's it's part of you have a broader stakeholder conversation and a stakeholder dialogue about where those those lines should be drawn i mean you'd want to have sort of um more scientific engagement so really sort of what we see this tool as is a a first step right so you can use this tool to identify areas that would be priorities to explore in more detail, right? Um, and and so you can sort of look at the tool and you can say, oh, okay, like, uh, like, like, like we have the um, the Costa Rica Thermal Dome, or the these this place called the Emperor Seamounts. That looks like that's going to be a hot spot um, for my conservation priorities. Um, and then, you know, once you've gotten sort of the sense of those those general areas that would benefit. Um, from from prioritization, we would then see uh, you know an important second step to be done um, would be to to gather um, that sort of additional scientific studies, additional data that's more granular and more specific to those those places that you're you're considering, and it would also allow you to identify the key stakeholders to be involved in that conversation because we certainly want to make sure that we have all the stakeholders in the room um, before we would engage in any sort of a line drawing exercise. So just to say, not a line drawing exercise, but we hope it, it helps to inform inform it and to and to sort of be the, the first step of the conversation. Set the stage, perhaps, for exactly. the kind of complex discussions that would, would be necessary to establish uh, a marine protected area on the high seas and the management regime that would go with it. Um, the question I want to ask Nicola is really about the efforts internationally that have, this has been going on for some time, back at least to the 1982 uh, Law of the Sea Convention that was the beginning, I think at least a step forward in establishing a legal framework uh, for management, use and protection of the sea, the seabed, uh, international waters. Um, as we go into this next phase and are trying to build a more robust international regime to tackle these complex issues in areas beyond national jurisdiction, um, who are the major proponents of this? And how is the United States, if you don't mind me being parochial here, asking about my country's initiative? Uh, what countries are leading the charge on this next round of negotiations and improvement? And how is the United States fitting into the negotiations in your in your view at this point? Sure, you know, really, it's it's hard to sort of pinpoint any one in particular because the it really is um, a, a lot of global players who are who are taking on leadership roles um, in in these negotiations as we gear up for for the final round. Um, truly, it's it's overwhelming just the amount of global support um, and an ambition to to finalize this treaty. So, you know, I, of course, leading the charge um, uh, would be a, a, a certain key regional group. So, for example, um, the Pacific Small Island Developing States, also known as the PSIDs, um, have been long champions for an ambitious high seas treaty and doing a lot of hard work to to champion um, an ambitious high seas treaty. And similarly, the Caribbean community um, have been really 
amazing um, and tireless champions for this effort. Um, but it's, it's um, you know, it, it really is global. You have the European Union um, and, you know, non-EU countries um, who are in, in Europe um, who have been really actively engaging. You have the African group who's been really actively engaging. You have Latin American community. They've The Latin American um, uh, group has sort of created their own special group just for, for BB&J that they call the CLAM group, the core Latin American group. Um, and they are uh, coordinate with each other. Um, so really, and, and, and of course, you know, the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, it's, it's all of the key countries, all of the key players are, are present and here and actively engaged um, in the negotiations. And, and I'll say, you know, the same for the, um, the United States. Um, so the United States recently joined, in fact, I think they are, they are perhaps the newest member of the um, high ambition coalition for the the BBNJ agreement. So they are, are certainly incredibly committed um, to getting uh, a treaty um, and, and to getting a treaty at this next and final round of negotiations. Very cool. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that that we are moving forward. It, it seems like it seems like a very necessary and appropriate uh, thing for us to be doing. And I, I have to say, as we're talking about this tool, ladies and gentlemen, you can go to pewtrust.org slash high seas and check this thing out. And it's it's easy. You can play with it. It's fun. Uh, I highly recommend it. I've got to ask. So in these negotiations, I want to I, I want to learn a little bit more about how this sausage is made. Uh, are we, what are we negotiating over? I, I guess is kind of my question. Like, um, I, are we trying to designate actual MPAs on the high seas or are we trying to create a framework by which future MPAs can be designated? It's the, it's the latter. It's, it's negotiating sort of the, um, the, the framework and, and by framework, really, it's um, it's setting out sort of the broad guidelines. Right. So um, if you the, the treaty text, as is currently um, currently drafted and is um, likely to the final text will likely look pretty, pretty similar to what the current draft text looks like. Um, but it, it sets out, um, you know, uh, sort of the objectives, you know, why it is that we want to have um, high seas, uh, why, we, why we want the BBNJ agreement to establish marine protected areas. Um, it sets out um, sort of broadly speaking, what would have to be included in a proposal for a marine protected area, right? So, you know, the the basic information that uh, a country would need to include if it's going to propose a marine protected area and, you know, including things like the um, the, the the boundary of the, the extent of the protected area, some of the, to identify the threats that are there and to identify the, you know, the management measures and a management plan that would be used as part of the marine protected area. Um, it also sort of specifies um, the process by which a protected area would would be um, considered and voted on, right? So it, it sets out, um, you know, after there's a proposal, it sets out some of the rules for consultation. It identifies um, a number of the, the entities who would need to be part of the consultation process. Um, and that includes... Um, Regional Fisheries Management Organization. It includes um, indigenous people and, and local communities. It includes traditional knowledge holders, the scientific community, um, as well as civil society, um, all as sort of stakeholders to to engage. Um, and um, and then it also outlines sort of how this future BBNJ body would actually decide to create the MPA. Right. Um, so there's there's a scientific body that would first review the proposal and make a re- recommendation to the decision-making body. Um, and um, so, yeah, so it, it's, so it, you're right. It, it does not, um, it's, we're not actually negotiating in this treaty specific um, marine protected areas, um, but it sets out basically the, the roadmap and the guidelines and the framework um, that would enable um, parties and states to actually create marine protected areas under this future BBNJ body once we have the treaty up and running. Woo. <laughs> Not an easy job. I, you know, I think about in comparison, for example, in the United States, the management of even the National Forest Service lands or other publicly owned spaces in America, the complexity of the negotiations 
the complexity of the interests at stake when you begin to identify areas where activities will be either encouraged or discouraged, depending on uh, the management regime that's involved. And in this case, uh, of course, we're going to be doing that on the international stage with multiple jurisdictions and and really uh, a sensitivity to uh, local and regional and indigenous communities and their interests in the high seas and the areas that are under discussion uh, for potential protection. Um, it's just that's such a challenging thing to do uh, in this area and any number of, of international issues. Um, are you optimistic if we can if we can get the treaty passed and create the framework where marine protected areas can be uh, proposed and evaluated and ultimately adopted? And then moving into management regimes that may govern uh, those uh, the, the activities in these areas. Uh, when you look down the path, are you optimistic that we can get to a point where an international regime can govern activities on the high seas in a way to better protect the ocean, the resources, and the human communities? You know, vested interest in the health of these spaces. Uh, Looking ahead, how, how long would it be, do you think, before the, we could possibly encounter uh, and see a proposed MPA on the high season? Can we get there? Can we get there, Nicola? Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, I, I Again, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm, I feel optimistic. I think we can get there. Um, now, your question of when is a, is an important one and a good one and the answer is the most frustrating answer to hear which is it depends and specifically it depends on the political will of of countries from around the world um so if we continue to push for countries to be ambitious so you know once we have a a, a high seas treaty in place so let's um let's be optimistic and say that we we finalize this treaty um uh, March 3rd, when, when the negotiations are set to end. Um, and uh, then the next phase, right, would be to, to ratify and to have enough countries to, to ratify. So um, at the moment, again, the, the exact number of countries that would have to sign on to this treaty uh, is still being negotiated. There are still, uh, there's, there's two options that are out there currently. Um, one option for 30 countries, uh, one option for 60 countries, and that's sort of the number of countries that would have to sign on to the treaty before it would begin to enter into force. Um, but in any event, um, you know, it would, I think the next step of this ratification campaign, um, let's say that we are, we are pushing countries to be ambitious um, and we, we continue this, we shift our efforts from um, trying to get them to negotiate an ambitious treaty um, to an effort to actually ratify and sign on to this treaty, right? So our, our, our goal in, in, working with countries um, shifts a little bit from from treaty text to ratification. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's question one is how long it takes to to ratify. And that could be it could be within a couple of years. Right. A, a, assuming that um, countries are ambitious um, and really follow up with their commitments, um, their global level commitments. So, you know, we can assume maybe a year and a half, two years before we are, are maybe implementing a high seas treaty. Um, the other thing that will need to be happening, and this some of this work can be done while we're working on ratifying, right? And the second phase of work that needs to be done is institution building. Um, so while we're working on getting countries to sign up to this treaty, um, we can start working on some draft guidelines for some of the really wonky and technical aspects that we're too wonky and technical to include um, in the treaty text, um, either too wonky or, or we wanted them to be able to be updated more easily. So some, some maybe more specific guidelines, like for example, um, who serves on the scientific committee, uh, sorry, the scientific committee, um, and uh, if they, what requirements they might have to serve on the science committee, that, that sort of level of detail. 
Um, and then there's a, a third phase of work, right, that also can be happening at the same time while we're working on ratifying. Um, and that is building the scientific case um, and that would sort of help underpin a proposal for marine protected areas. So collecting that data and information um, and, and also working um, on sort of starting those conversations with key stakeholders better to start early <laughs> in those discussions rather than than leaving it until the very the very end um, and and thinking also about capacity building right how we build capacity to enable and support countries to effectively implement um, and monitor and review these marine protected areas once they are established um, so I, I meandered a bit from your question about timing um, but I think um, it, it's because it depends on how ambitious um, countries are and how hard they push. Uh, I think we can we can be looking at um, our first generation of high seas marine protected areas before 2030 in time to meet this um, Kuming Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework, as it is is formally called, but it's perhaps less formally called 30 by 30, um, which is this goal to protect 30% of marine areas by 2030. Um, and I think if countries continue to be ambitious, um, we can have a BBNJ treaty that's in place and up and running in time to, to have some high seas MPAs that would help contribute to that 30 by 30 goal. What does the 30 by 30 goal represent in the effort to create this mechanism to designate MPAs? I mean, obviously it's a goal, it's a target, 30%. But is that is that a rallying? I mean, I'm curious in, in the room, I mean, is that is that what everyone's rallying behind? Is this kind of this notion of 30%? So it, it certainly is part of the conversation. Um, you know, I think people have been people have been interested in having a high seas treaty to create high seas MPAs since 2002. Um, back when we weren't talking about 30 by 30, we were just trying to get 10% by 2010. <laughs> um, and so I, I think um, it's the, the specific number target has has changed and evolved over the the course of the discussion and i think the the reason that we came to the table was because people recognize that marine protected areas are an incredibly important tool for protecting biodiversity um, and that there's a really critical gap currently in the high seas and that we can't create marine protected areas in the high seas to to use them to um, to address um, and some of the threats to biodiversity in high seas areas. So I think, um, you know, that was the main reason why people came to the table. But certainly now, um, with this new 30 by 30 goal, um, people recognize that we can't protect 30% of the global ocean without protecting the high seas and a recognition that the high seas have to be part of that solution. So I think it is absolutely um, top of mind for, for people realizing that we need to have this high seas treaty. Um, I mean, we need it to be ambitious um, if we're going to reach that 30 by 30 global political target. It's such an important uh, initiative, Nicola. And I, I know that the listeners of all of the shows on the American Shoreline Podcast Network and uh, the folks who, who, who chime in and read Coastal News Today you know, have an innate understanding of why the ocean and uh, these spaces are so critical uh, to actually the, f the future of humanity and uh, the efforts to get a handle on uh, the activities that we undertake uh, and to, uh, to try to find a way uh, to derive the benefits we want from the ocean and coastal space and yet preserve those spaces, protect them so that they continue to benefit humanity is a massive job. And the continued leadership of uh, the Pew Charitable Trust and the uh, and Pew's Ocean Governance team is really uh, so refreshing to hear that you guys are at the table, working hard, developing tools to facilitate the discussion, uh, trying to promote this idea of being ambitious about this and getting this uh, treaty finished and ratified. Uh, we just want to thank you, and on behalf of the listeners on ASPN and and the readers of Coastal News Today, and all the all the people who love the ocean and coast around the world, um, keep up the good work. Uh, we really we really appreciate it. A any final uh, closing thoughts on the on the upcoming negotiations February twentieth at the UN headquarters in New York? Uh, any closing thoughts about Pew? 
Um, well, I'll, I'll maybe just uh, return the thanks to you all because I think um, you know it's it's for me a passion um, to to try and and work to get these high seas places protected and certainly for for Pew and our ocean governance team it's a really high priority um, to to get a strong and robust high seas treaty um, but we need we need people to know about it we need people to know um, about the high seas about the threats that they face and about the opportunity that this BBNJ agreement presents um, to actually help us help us address some of these gaps and to actually get high seas marine protected areas out there and in the world and functioning and, and protecting our, our global ocean um, so thank you for for raising this issue and for for sharing for sharing the good news <laughs> and and for for um, providing a platform for people to learn more about the high seas Place, these high seas spaces, um, how uh, how incredible they are, um, and how we can and and about how the BBNJ agreement can actually uh, give us an opportunity to to finally protect them. Um, so so I would thank you guys for for having us on again. Um, and as I said, I'm I'm optimistic that um, we will will bring home uh, a high seas treaty. Um, at the at the end of this next round of negotiations, February twentieth through March third, um, and then we'll look forward to to working with you all and everyone who's interested um, in protecting the high seas. Um, maybe looking to our web tool um, to to think about um, shifting our eyes from from once we get the treaty um, to how we get high seas marine protected areas. So I'll, I'll thank you guys so much for for having me on. Well, it's it's our privilege, and uh, we really appreciate you coming back to update us on the status of the negotiations. We wish you and all of the participants and diplomats and folks at the United Nations uh, all the goodwill in trying to bring this to a close. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Nicola Clark. She is a project officer with Pew's Ocean Governance Team, uh, leader with the Pew Charitable Trust, a great organization working on behalf of all of us to protect the oceans and coastal areas around the world. Uh, Nicola, thank you so much for the time today. And uh, we love, we always love hearing from the folks at Pew and uh, you're always welcome back to tell us about the good work that you're doing on ocean and coastal issues. Thank you so much. Beaches Yeah.